We've been looking at uh, the book of Revelation, and we've been looking at it a long time. I don't feel as badly um, as I, I have in the past how many uh, lessons we've had, because I think we're in lesson, this is lesson 55, but um, there is... Uh, someone, another uh, pastor that I know at this point was at lesson 71 at this point. And so I feel pretty good about that. We're 20 lessons. It's like we haven't even started yet, really. And so we're we're working our way through. What what we're going to see tonight in Revelation 14 is a a couple of harvests uh, and really two phases of Christ's second coming. We call it the second coming. And if you're not careful, you may, you may miss uh, the difference between the rapture of the church and what is called the second coming or the second advent. And the reason we miss that is because when Christ returns for us, that is, as far as I'm concerned, that's the second coming of Christ for me. But it's not the second coming of Christ to the earth. And so when you're looking at the scripture, you know that he came as a baby, he was born, and that was his first coming. But his second coming to the earth is not the rapture of the church. So the sequence goes like this. His first coming, then the rapture, then we'll see tonight there are actually two parts to the second advent, and we'll see that tonight. So some people call the second advent the second coming, and it's, the scripture doesn't use either of those terms. But to help us understand, we, we know that he is coming again for his church, but secretly, and then he is coming later in two parts, very publicly. Those are two different things, so keep that in mind. Uh, it, when you think of second coming, just think of rapture, even though that's not technically a word in the Bible, but the concept is certainly there. Uh, the, the, the catching out of God's, of Christ's bride, that's the secret coming of Christ. That's where he doesn't come down to the earth, he comes in the clouds and they meet, uh, we as the church, meet the Lord in the air. But tonight we're going to look at the second coming, or if you like, the second advent, and we're going to look at the first part of it. Now, when we look at the, the return of Christ to the earth, there is a, a lot of Old Testament, a lot of Old Testament references and I'll just burn through a few of these. This is uh, the, the bad side. Uh, Deuteronomy 32, 35 is described as the day of calamity. Psalm 110.3 is described as the day of thy power. Psalm 140, verse 7, the day of battle. Proverbs 16.4, the day of evil. Isaiah 10.3, the day of visitation. Isaiah 13.6, a day of destruction from the Almighty, Isaiah 13, 9. A cruel day, 13, 13, the day of his fierce anger, Isaiah 17, 11, The day of grief and of desperate sorrow, Isaiah 22, 5. A day of trouble and of treading down, 
Isaiah 27, 8, the day of the east wind. Isaiah 30, 25, the day of the great slaughter. Jeremiah 16, 9, the day of affliction. Jeremiah 46, 10, the day of vengeance. And I'll read the rest of them. Uh, I have their notes, uh, the references for them, but here's what they're called. It's called later on in the rest of the Old Testament, the day of the wrath of the Lord, a day of vengeance. Uh, the day of indignation, the day of rebuke, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, a great and very terrible day, the day of the whirlwind, a day of darkness and not light, the day of the Lord's sacrifice, a day when the mighty man shall cry bitterly, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteless, a wasteness and desolation. And Malachi says it's the day of his coming. And this theme continues on in the New Testament. Matthew 10, the day of judgment. In Acts, the great and notable day of the Lord. Romans 2, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 2 Peter 3, 7, the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And Revelation 16, that great day of God Almighty. Now, I want to stop here for a moment and say... If you've ever been mad at injustice, then you know a little bit about God. God is very concerned about injustice. Now, what's going to happen is as you read about how angry God is and how much his wrath is going to be poured out, you'll find, and, I'll, and, and I find, that in my own old human nature, knowing that I am guilty as well, I'll start saying, God, come on, come on. Uh, I mean, let's ease off just a little bit. That's a lot. That's No, it's enough. That's enough. And we've seen that played out in our eyes the last month, in the last several weeks, where how could Hamas do this? Man, Israel, you are righteous in your anger. You come in, and now what's happening? Due to all kinds of misinformation and lies. Now, Israel, Israel, wait up, wait up, wait up. Just calm down, calm down, calm down. Even though you've experienced this, you need to relax. And uh, the reason why is because it didn't happen to you. And the reason why uh, you can't understand the wrath of God is because you're not God. They weren't cussing your name. They weren't uh, shaking their fist in the face of you that created them. But with God, he made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. And you'd think of, of, any, of any idea that a man might have would be, you know what, I think I want to honor God. Because I know I didn't make myself, I'm not making myself breathe, I'm not making my heart beat. I know I'm not causing my eyes to be able to distinguish beautiful colors. I'm not the one that created my taste buds that helps me enjoy my food. I really have been blessed. I need to thank my God. But what, is, what do people do? They, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And now they go much further than that, of course. Uh, and it, it, of course, they've always been atheists. But now it's become a religion. And now you have people who critique and mock and say, oh, yeah, God's probably some, you know, big, great, big spaghetti monster. I mean, I might as well believe in anything like that. And they're mocking the concept of there being a God. And then you say all, you see all the things that are done in the name of God religiously. I mean, how many people have invoked the name of God um, in the last three weeks? Uh, I've heard multiple people saying, God be praised, God be praised. I killed 10, 10 Jews. I'm so grateful. Dad, aren't you proud of me? Invoking the name of God. And you say, well, that's not the same God. Well, if you 
from what I understand, it's a neutral, neutral name, God. In other words, it's, they're not doing it for the God of the Bible, but they're doing it for their God in their mind. And that's taking the name of the true God in vain. Over and over and over again, all of the heart, heartache and problems, and you think of all the religious confusion and deception and violence that has been perpetrated on the human race in the name of God, and God has finally had it up to here. All the adultery, all the murder, all the rape, all the lying and the deception, all the sneakiness, the inability to hold the truth and, and worship the true God, God says, I am sick and tired of it. And that's when this all comes. And God has been holding back until this point. Now in Revelation chapter 14, we looked last week at several of the angels. We saw in verses 6 to 7, the first angel had a message about belief. The second angel had an announcement concerning Babylon. The third angel... 14, chapter 14, verses 9 to 11, had a warning about the beast. And then the Spirit of God has a reminder about blessing. And he said in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Now, we continue in this chapter, but this chapter is a parenthesis. Remember, it is a reminder or a review of what has happened and what is coming. And so it stands almost like an island in the middle of this paragraph, this chapter, and it's going to talk to us now about two harvests that are on the way. Notice verses 14 to 16. And uh, this first harvest is found. Let's read 14 through 16. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is the first of the two harvests, or the two parts of the second coming. This first harvest has to do with grain that is stored in a barn. We'll see that in a moment. And uh, that is not, this is not the rapture of the church that we're anticipating. This grain has to do with the rapture of people who will be removed from the earth sometime just before the end of the tribulation period. So the first harvest has to do with grain that is stored in a barn. Then you have the second harvest that has to do with grapes that are trodden in a wine press. Look at verse 17. And another angel came out of the, the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. So you notice the first one had a, a sharp sickle, this one has a sharp sickle. Uh, and he's saying, um, 
I'm sorry, verse number 18. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even under the horse's horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six furlongs. So this second grape harvest has to do with a gathering of people who will remain on the earth. So you have some that are removed. You see the first uh, harvest there had the, the man had the, the angel had the sharp sickle. And then the second one, he had a sharp sickle as well. But notice these grapes are cast into the wine press where they will experience the wrath of God. And these are the folks who remain on the earth and are gathered together to fight the battle of Armageddon. And in the Old Testament, you have a type of this. Before you have the Feast of Tabernacles, you had a gathering of the wheat, of the grain, and you had a gathering of the grapes. And so... Before Christ returns to tabernacle, before his tabernacle is on the earth, as we see in Revelation 21, it is a time of harvest, both of the grain and of the grapes. So when you're looking at your Old Testament, you can see there's a type there in what the Lord has done in, with the Old Testament believers. And he said, I'm coming back and I'm going to do it again. Now, I want you to take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Now, you may be looking at this and thinking, I don't see that. I don't see what you're saying. Well, let's look at Matthew 13. And this will help to bring into focus. The Bible tells us we're supposed to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So let's look at that tonight. 1324. 13.24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Notice the good seed. It's called good seed. Verse 24. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the what? The wheat. Or, or they're also called what? In verse 24. Good seed. The wheat is the good seed. Uh, he sowed this tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now here is where we need to use some discernment. Discernment is the ability to see the difference between not just bad and good, but between good, right, and almost right. So we obviously see that there's a distinction here between wheat and tares, and that some are bad, some are good, some are going to be taken up, and to be with the husbandman, the reaper, some are going to be burned. 
All right. The problem is this. If you have been taught that the 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 tares are counterfeit believers, people who make a profession of faith uh, in Jesus Christ, but they never have the possession of salvation. People who pray a prayer but never really get saved, if you've been taught that, and that the wheat are people who really are true believers in Christ. Well, that, that is a devotional, perhaps, way of looking at it. But if you're not careful, if you try to say that's what it is, you end up with some problems. Now, I could try to explain it to you, or I could give you books to explain it, but let's just read what Jesus says in the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying exactly what we say when we read the Bible. Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answering and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you try to make this the rapture of the church, you have one major problem, and that is the reapers are the angels. And so you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to make those two things. If you have to force verses to fit, they don't fit. And so when you look at, let's say, uh, you're, you're doing a puzzle, you're pretty sure that this is the piece. And after an hour, you're really sure that this is the piece because I'm tired of doing this puzzle. Just because you're tired of it doesn't make it the one that fits. Just because you think it's the one that fits doesn't mean that it is. So that's why we talk about rightly dividing the word of truth. It doesn't mean that, oh, all the people that use this verse, wheat and the tares, are all wicked and terrible, they're horrible. No, but when you get down to brass tacks, there's nothing in the Bible about the angels taking us up in the rapture. Now, you can try to force it. You can come to the Bible and you can say, well, I I, I never heard that before. And so I'll tell you what I think it is. It doesn't matter what I think it is. It doesn't matter what you think it is. It matters what does it say. So if I don't know what it says, you know, the best thing for me to do is to wait. Keep reading. Keep praying. Keep asking questions. Keep reading, praying, asking questions. You keep going until the Lord says, here's the piece. Now, how do I know that it fits? It fits all the scriptures. The whole puzzle fits together. And so there's a lot of the Bible I do not understand. There's pieces that I think maybe that would fit. And guess what I find out? It doesn't fit. And I have friends that remind me, church members that remind me, oh, that doesn't fit. I tell them, you know what I tell them? I say, shut up. I say, you don't tell me, I tell you. That's what religion does. You know what the, what the leader of this church is? This Bible. And I'm responsible 
as the pastor to make sure that it continues to be the head. This is Christ on paper. And so we follow this book. It's very important. Um, we have to have unity, of course, and, and in matters of, well, this guy says that, that guy says this, I make the final call, but I can tell you this, <laughs> I look at myself as the junior hire in charge of the playground at that point. I, I have no authority than what, other than what comes from the scripture. And so we, we have to keep this. So I'm saying that because this may be new to you to think through this concept of the distinction between the different harvests. Let's look now at the first phase. Let's begin our outline. Roman numeral one, the first phase is the gloriousness of the grain harvest. So we saw this already. John sees the reaper of the harvest in verse 14. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the son of man. Who does that sound like? Jesus. What's a clue? What's a clue? Son of man is a clue for sure. There's another clue right there in the phrase son of man. Capital S. Capital S. It is the son of man. I say that because Ezekiel has like 93 mentions of son of man speaking to Ezekiel. Right? And so the Son of Man is used in the Old Testament to people, but it's also used to Messiah who is coming. Let's take our Bibles and look at Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Did you notice that in Matthew 13, the Son of Man was the one who sowed? And then in Revelation 14, he's the one who puts thrusts in his sickle. He's the reaper. He uses the angels to reap. But he's not dropping the seed in. He's taking it out. So the, the, the phrase son of man is what we're looking at now. It's a key phrase in the Bible. Look at uh, Psalm 8. Jesus used this phrase often of himself in the third person. He, he said, the foxes have hold, holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man hath not where to lay his head. He referred to himself as the son of man. <laughs> why, why? Isn't everyone the son of man? I mean, any prophet, wouldn't any leader in Israel, any person, whether Jew or Gentile, could say, I am a son of man. Well, Jesus said, I am the son of man. But either, even still, he's referring to his humanity, but he uses the capital S, the son of man. It's the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now, the Jews like to pretend like they didn't think that it was possible. But it was, and they knew it from the Bible. They just didn't like it. Look at Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Whose name? The Lord's name. Who hath set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. You know, Jesus was a babe and a suckling. He came down as the Son of Man. He says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man that thou visitest him? Now we know that applies to Adam and all of his, all of his uh, seed. But, but it goes beyond that. And you can see 
There's a type here. We'll see in a moment. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowls of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. Notice all of the things are under his feet. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Would that include anything that goes through the seas? Sure would. Think about the Lord of heaven. All things are under his feet. And he goes on to say, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. He starts with that and he finishes with that. And in between, he set man a little lower than the angels. What do you think? It has a little bit more to do than just with David himself or Adam or Noah or any of those people. The son of man. Did you see that in verse number four? Look over in Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. So when, he, when Jesus started referring to himself as the son of man, the Jews understood. The Jews had selective memory like we do. Do you remember when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, <clears throat> Herod asked where Messiah should be born? And what did, he, what did they tell him? In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written of the prophets. And then when Jesus shows up and begins his ministry, what do they all say? We don't know, when, we don't know where this guy's coming from. We don't know where he's from. Well, everybody knew where he's from. The ones that cared. But see, we all do it if we're not careful. We conveniently partition off information that would hurt our cause. And we forget. And that's what the Jews would do. Look at Daniel 7. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. Remember, Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. And glory in a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So it sounds like a derogatory term. But when you look at Psalm 8 and Daniel 7, the Jews would have understood that the Son of Man was in fact God in human flesh. That's why when Jesus would use the term son of man, the Jews would get ticked off and the scribes because they say, we know this guy. We know this guy. One of the most dangerous things in your Christian walk is what you know about God. What do they say about familiarity? It breeds contempt. Why does it breed contempt? Because familiarity assumes. Familiarity says, I know what you're going to do next. I know you. I know everything about you. Let me ask you this. How does that work in the relationship, say, with husband and wife? When your spouse says, I know you. I know what you're going to do. How does that make you feel? Now, if they're saying it like, I know I can trust you to do the right thing, that's a different thing. But when your spouse says, I, know, I knew exactly what you were going to do, doesn't that tick you off? 
Why? Because you don't like this idea that someone thinks they can control everything about you just because of what you've said or done in the past. Now, this is not marriage counseling tonight, but just keep in mind, don't use the terms, you always do that or you never do that. Just keep those words out of arguments, always and never. Just don't do that. Um, Be nice, be nice. This world is full of nasty people. And no, that girl that's batting her eyes at you is not nicer. She may be nicer in one area, but she's got a whole lot of baggage in another area. Not counting all the baggage that you're going to have when you get divorced. So just a little side note. I know that you all have perfect marriages, and so it's not for you. It's for other people out there. Um, but, 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 but think about this. Why do you, what, what do you think God feels like when we just assume and presume on him? Presume. Well, he won't mind. He won't care. And so that's what the Jews did with Jesus. They assumed. They assumed everything. Let's look back in Revelation 14. Revelation 14. It says there that this, this one like unto the Son of Man, upon the cloud, one sat. So he's sitting on a white cloud. What are clouds? Well, it, it's the same cloud in Exodus 13, 21 and 22 that went out before the children of Israel. As they wandered through the wilderness, same cloud in Exodus 19 that was present at the giving of the law, same cloud in Matthew 17 from which the Father spoke about Jesus. This is my beloved Son on the Mount of Transfiguration. Same cloud in Acts 1, verse 9, that received the Lord Jesus Christ as those who were sitting on the uh, 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 sitting out there on the hill uh, waiting for him to ascend. Same cloud. It's the same cloud that is going to bring Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Talking about the clouds, it's not just physical clouds. It is a cloud that represents his clothing, clothed with a cloud. The clouds are the clothing of his glory, the clothing of his glory. When he comes back at the second advent, Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. So those clouds are representing his glory. Uh, then we have the golden crown. He's wearing a golden crown. In chapter 14, verse 14, he has a golden crown on his head. But I, want, I want you to see the distinction. Look at Revelation 19. Revelation 19. See the distinction here between chapter 14 and chapter 19. Verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire. This is Jesus Christ returning, King of kings, Lord of lords. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. This is not the same appearing as the second advent. One crown, many crowns. This is God manifest in the flesh. He's coming down in victory to claim the wheat at the end of the tribulation. Now remember, Revelation 14 is not at the, tribula- at the end of the tribulation per se, chronologically. we still got a whole bunch more chapters to go. And even if the Lord returns, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to finish the book of Revelation all the way through. Don't worry about that. 
But uh, you can tell me what's going on in heaven. Uh, No, I'm just kidding. I would never stay here to finish that. I I don't have a choice, I guess, at this point. And I'm glad to get out of here. But Revelation 19 tells us the distinction there. Um, He's coming, even though it's in chapter 14, it's a parenthesis in the chronological timeline. And so it's talking about some things that are yet to come. It's almost as if John can see a timeline, which may be why prophecy buffs and uh, revelation scholars love timelines more than anything. I'm just not good at graphics. That's why I don't have a whole lot of them. But he may have been seeing, it seems, that the whole panoply, the panorama of what's happening and he's, he's seeing it, and, and then this is, is highlighted, and that's highlighted, and that's floating. And so it's kind of all in front of him. And we're heading that way with VR, um, virtual reality. We're heading that way anyhow with screens, things like that. Now multiple screens and being able to project out in front of you. We'll, we'll have more and more of that as we go along. And the idea is I, I don't want just one screen. I want a lot of screens. Why? I don't want to just watch one game. I want to watch... I want to watch all of the games at the same time. And if you like that kind of stuff, if you are like sensory overload, you love it, you, you can get into Revelation because it's got all kinds of stuff like that. This is happening and that's happening and that's happening. If you're a really neat, everything goes in the correct color-coded, alphabet, alphabetized file, Revelation is not your bag. Um, and so... You have to kind of remember that, that there's a lot of moving parts and pieces. But if you can remember that chapter 14 is a parenthesis, that helps you understand this is not the chronology. This is kind of a, hey, by the way, these things are all coming up. This is coming up, just like they do you know, promotions of TV shows and stuff like that. This is coming. Now, let's look at number three. He's holding a sharp sickle, the instrument of reaping. Instrument of reaping. In other words, the, the, we've heard about the grim reaper. What does that mean? You're about to die. Well, in this case, it's not just death in the sense of you're going to be destroyed, it is, but it's reaping. It is the end of your existence as it stands. Look at Deuteronomy 32, I'm sorry, 23, Deuteronomy 23, and look at a verse very quickly. This is the second reference in the Bible to the word sickle, talking about how to handle the sickle, what to do with it. And he says in Deuteronomy 23, uh, verse 25, When thou comest into the standing corn of thy neighbor, then thou mayest pluck the ears with thine hand, but thou shalt not move a sickle unto thy neighbor's standing corn. God is saying you can only reap a sickle in a field over which you have authority. Well, I'm... I'm very thankful to tell you, Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the Lord has full authority over this earth. And when he decides to put his sickle in, he doesn't have to get permission from anybody. This is his earth. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And remember John 5, great reference, 526. For the Father, as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is, guess what? The Son of Man. He has authority to reap in the earth. You know what's you know what it's like? It's like the Lord says, Oh no, 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 he grew up in the same ground that you did. 
He knows everything about you. He is not going to pull the wrong person out. He is not going to cut down and destroy the wrong person. He knows he was in all points tempted like as you were, yet without sin. He, it's his land. He not only owns it, he grew up on it. And so he knows that thing backwards and forwards. And he, is gonna, and he said, I've graven you upon the palms of my hands. We say, I know that place like the back of my hand. Well, he said, I know it like the palm of my hand. I was raised there. I know exactly who is a fake Jew. The tares say they are Jews and are not. And I know who are the true believers who have been faithful. And so he's coming down and he's doing that work. Now let's look at letter B. First we saw... Letter A, the reaper of the harvest. Now, the ripeness of the harvest. The ripeness of the harvest. And that is because heaven is ready. Notice the readiness of heaven. Verse 15, back in chapter 14. Another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud. Thrust in thy sickle and reap. For the time has come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. What kind of a voice did he use? A loud voice. He said, I, this, we're ready for this thing. He's coming out of the temple from the presence of the Father. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 that the Father had put all times and seasons into his own power. And so he comes out of this temple from where God is, his presence. And, and he says, it's time for Jesus to thrust in his sickle. And he said, reap, the time has come for that great separation of the wheat and the tares. And we find that heaven is ready for it. They are excited about it. They're excited about God getting the glory that he deserves. Number two. The ripeness of the earth. So the harvest can't be reaped until the fruit is ripe. Look at James chapter 5. James chapter 5 verse 7 is a great reference here to the husbandman. James chapter 5, look at verse 7. James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. So the husbandman has been waiting patiently for 2,000 years for the precious fruit of the earth to ripen. We won't go into it tonight, but there are some sweet Jews that come through the tribulation, people whose eye, uh, God, are the apple of God's eye. They, he, he loves them, and they love him, and he has been waiting a long time for this. Now, let her see the reaping of the harvest, the reaping of the harvest. Back to chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 16. Revelation 14, 16. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now remember, Matthew 13 told us about the fact that the harvest would take place at the end of the world, and that it would be in two stages. This is what I mean by the two stages I mentioned earlier. First, the tares are gathered into bundles. That's number one. And the bundles are left standing there in the field. And then later, those bundles are cast into the fire and burned. Secondly, the wheat is gathered and taken out of the field and placed in the husbandman's barn. 
So the scene that John is seeing here, the earth was reaped, is the same one that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 13. This is not, and here's a distinction to make again, this is not when Jesus comes back to the earth at the second advent. This is not a time of judgment, because you notice, you see the distinction, 14, 15, 16, and 17 to 20. The distinction is night and day. Someone's on the cloud, the harvest is reaped. 17 to 20, there's blood flowing up to the horse's bridle. So those, that distinction is important to keep in mind, because it tells us uh, uh, something important to keep in mind. That there is more than one rapture. Now this is this sound. This can sound crazy uh, because sometimes we 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 we're told very basic things, but we have to we have to look at all of the scripture. And when we look at Matthew twenty uh, Matthew thirteen. We see there's certainly a distinction between someone is getting reaped, someone is getting burned. There's a distinction there. But I want you to see, uh, look at one more verse, Matthew 24. Here's another verse, a a chapter that has been bandied about. It's kind of the kid that everybody beats up on. Matthew 24. Everybody uses it for, they use it for everything. Signs of the times, all that kind of stuff. But the context of Matthew 24 is the tribulation. And what happens is, when you, when you allow these things to adjust in your mind, stuff starts clicking. Like, oh. Look, look at verse number 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Well, that, that fits. Right? The, tr- the trumpet shall sound. Yeah, but notice again, there's the angels. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So notice here, they gather these together. They're gathering them. So what will happen, if, you, if you'll understand this concept of more than one rapture, it'll clear up some craziness in your mind. There are people who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture where Jesus Christ comes for the church. And that's where I am. That's where I stand because of what the scripture says. God hath not appointed us to wrath. There are some that believe in a post-tribulation rapture where Jesus Christ comes for his saints at the end of the tribulation. There are some that believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. And then some people teach today, a lot of people talk about a pre-wrath rapture. And that the, the tribulation is, is uh, three and a half years and that, that Jesus comes and takes his children out uh, before the wrath of the rapture. Well, you can see easily where the two different raptures, at least the post-tribulation, after the tribulation rapture comes from, it comes from a misunderstanding of Matthew 13 and Matthew 24. Right? Why? It's not for the church. It's for the Jews. 
the Jews who have made it through the tribulation. That's why you've got to keep those things distinct. But let me list the three raptures for you quickly, and you can go back and study these verses on your own time. Number one, the rapture of the Old Testament saints at the resurrection of Christ. Many of the saints arose and walked into the city and were seen of many people. What, that, what was that? Well, in a sense, that was the resurrection part, and then the rapture was when he took them to heaven. Uh, the second part is the rapture of New Testament saints of the church age. That's you and I, those of us that have been born again by trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the rapture of the church. That's the second rapture. And then the third rapture is what we saw in Revelation 14, also in Matthew 24. You can see it in Revelation 11, the rapture of tribulation saints at the end of the tribulation. Now, let me give you the reason uh, that the, the tribulation is the, the, the last part of that. Number three is not where we line up, but number two. Well, we understand that Scripture teaches a rapture of the church. Here's something interesting. You know, the, the, the Scripture uses, the book of Revelation uses the term church or churches 20 times. 19 of those are in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then you have one mention of the church in Revelation 22 at the very end of the book. That's very interesting. It's not like you had one mention or two mentions at the beginning. Something happens, well, Revelation 4.1. A door opens in heaven, and a voice, sound of a, a, a trumpet, a voice like the sound of a trumpet, come up hither. That is what we call the blessed hope. Christ appears, our bridegroom appears to take us out, and we're gone. Why? He loves us. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. He loves us. Not because we're uh, loving, not because we're worthy of his love, but because he is loving. And because he is worthy, and so because of that, he takes us up. That's number two, the rapture of the New Testament saints. That's where we go out. But there's also this post-tribulation rapture that comes at the end. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to see the three parts of the rapture or the three parts of the harvest. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. To give you another cross-reference. 15.22. And that rapture, by the way, takes place, that, that post-tribulation takes place at least seven years after the church has been raptured out. All right, so let's look at this. Uh, at 1522, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So notice he's talking about the order. Every man in his own order. Number one, the first fruits, Christ. When Christ rose from the, from the dead and a bunch of saints rose with him, Old Testament saints. He led captivity captive according to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. All right, then you have the, the, the harvest he says, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. They that are Christ's. What's that? That's the rapture. The rapture of the church. And then cometh the end. Notice, what is he talking about? He's talking about how all shall be made alive. Now, the Bible tells us we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
So here he said, they're going to be made alive, every man in his own order. Christ was dead and he rose, right? The saints were already dead in the Old Testament and they rose with Christ. But the second part, that rapture, some of them, we shall not all sleep. Some of them, and I hope it's some of us, will be alive when Jesus returns. Now, I just have to be honest with you. It doesn't really make a difference. I'm going to blow your mind here. Hang on. Buckle up. As far as the judgment seat of Christ, you don't get extra points when you get to heaven for being alive at the rapture. You don't. You know what? Sometimes we talk about the blessed hope. What we're saying is, I hate America. I hate this culture. We're more excited about our disappearing than we are about his appearing. It doesn't really make a difference if you don't go to heaven in the rapture, spiritually speaking. Now, physically, it makes all the difference, which is what we're really interested in. Are you following me? I just don't want to die. That's why I want the rapture to happen. Well, I'm going to just ask you this question. Paul said, I'm in a strait betwixt two. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and joy of faith. I'm going to throw a bomb tonight. Could it be, could it be that some of our Laodicean desire for Jesus to return is nothing more than selfishness? I want to get out of here. You do know that when you leave here, the game's over for you, right? No more shots, no more tackles, no more marks. You're done. No more people saved. No more gospel tracts handed out. I'm pushing on this point because I think, I think we came through a great time in our, our mindset where it was, you know, we came out of the 60s, it was horrible. Man, look what they did to the government, the government did to us. Look what happened, all the kids dying in, in, in Vietnam and everything. Yes, it was a horrible and terrible time, but guess what happened? As, uh, right on the heels of that came a big revival in the idea of Jesus returning. Now, can I just tell you this? In the 50s, when everything was great, the rapture was still just as much in the Bible. But nobody cared. <laughs> you mean to tell me that it's going to be better than it is here? <laughs> I don't think so. This is the golden age. We beat everybody in the world. We're the biggest, fastest, strongest, most powerful country in the entire universe. We don't need the rapture. We got Eisenhower. You see what he did to the Germans? Man, we, 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 we've got some amazing things. What happened? What happens is sometimes we set our understanding of who we are as believers based on the headlines. I, I realize this is not popular. I do know what I'm saying. I've been around this all of my life. I'm pushing at this, Christian, because if God wanted you in heaven, he could take you anytime he wants. And no amount of your desire or change is going to, is going to speed that timeline up. 
What I'm, what I'm saying is not that you shouldn't look forward to the rapture. I'm saying you should look forward to Jesus. Jesus is the reason why we should be interested in the rapture. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Not just, God, get me out of this. Way. I don't know, man. People can't decide if they're man or woman. And we got all kinds of homosexuals dancing in the street. And Hamas is going to be at the door demanding our blood. Like, you know what? Maybe. Maybe. Guess what? What are you going to do to stop it? Nothing. Christian, the devil has very easily deceived us into thinking the main goal of the Christian life is to get through this as as quick as we can and get out of here where it's really going to be great. But even here in two, we recall because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody does. And yet we find ourselves suffering. You know what we should be doing? We should be following the example of Jesus Christ, who says, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, that's what the Christian life is all about. These are my desires. This is what I think would be awesome. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Because let me ask you this. What, what do you say to somebody who, like Harlan Popov, sat in a cell, solitary confinement in a Russian gulag for years and tell him the rapture's coming? You know, it's, it's, it's not getting out of the cell that excited him. It was knowing the Jesus in the cell. That's the difference. It's not just getting out of this culture, and it was so bad. It is bad. Yes, it is. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Why? That's what they do. They get worse and worse. You and I as believers, we should get stronger and stronger. Better and better. Hey, the Bible says that though the outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Every day you can get better and stronger. 1% stronger. One step closer to the Lord. Walking with him through the darkness. All right, now we'll get off of that subject. What we have here is, is the first fruits, the harvest, and then the gleaning. And the gleaning is what we're referring to in the book of Revelation chapter 14. I want you to take your Bibles to Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17. Isaiah 17. And look at verse number 4. Isaiah 17, verse 4. And in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob shall be made thin. Right? That this is, and the fatness of his flesh shall wax lean. This is the tribulation, the glory of Jacob. And it shall be as when the harvestman gathereth the corn and reapeth the ears with his arm. Man, he doesn't have much of a crop, does he? And it shall be as he that gathereth ears in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes shall be left in it, left in Jacob. As the shaking of an olive tree, two or three berries in the top of the uttermost bough, four or five in the outmost fruitful branches thereof, saith the Lord God of Israel. Flip over to Jeremiah. Look at verse 6. Jeremiah 6. You can see the crossover here. Jeremiah chapter 6, look at verse 9. 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall throughly glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Turn back thine hand as a grape gatherer into the baskets. Gleaning. So this gleaning coincides with a visible appearance of Jesus Christ and a visible catching away of believers. Revelation 11. Everyone on the face of the earth will behold him as he circles the globe. Revelation 1, 7, every eye shall see him, but only certain ones will be taken. And this will help you in understanding things like the wise virgins who kept their lamps trimmed. You ever have trouble with that? You try to put that in the church age, we're in big trouble. Okay, so what do you do with it? Well, you don't put it in the church age. What you can do is you could put it right here. The wise virgins, they were prepared. Well, the Lord is coming. That's got to be the rapture. No, there's more than one coming of the Lord. He comes at first, and he takes his Old Testament saints out when he rises at his first coming, the end of his first coming. Then the second coming is when he comes for his church. And we don't call it this because it's not really that in that sense, but it's the third time that he catches someone out. And that is at the end of the tribulation. So you have the wise virgins. You also have the righteous who kept themselves clean. And then you have those who were looking for his second coming. So that, that gives us uh, the first phase of the second coming of Christ. Where Jesus Christ, the word, will separate the wheat from the tares. He'll rapture out of his field the wheat and store it safely in his barn. And this is going to be a glorious harvest because um, the suffering like Christ, the suffering that he would go through and the glory that should follow, the same thing with the saints here. The tribulation saints have gone through much suffering. It is going to be very hard to be a tribulation saint, but it will be a glorious harvest. And then there is another harvest that John sees in verses 17 to 20. So as we close tonight, we're going to go to prayer in just a moment. But first, let me encourage you this way. They say that a watched pot never what? Supposedly. Now, I think you could prove it wrong. You could sit there. But what, hap- what they're saying is this. The same as when you were in school. Watching the clock didn't make it go any faster. Watching the clock for Jesus' return... If it encourages you to do something for him, then it's a good thing. But if it causes you to forget about what you should be doing, then it's a bad thing. Why? When Christ returns, what is he going to do? He is going to take assessment of what we have done in our body, whether it be good or bad. You know what the best way to prepare for Christ's coming? Put your head down and do what he wants you to do and let him take care of his coming. And when things get tough, don't think first, I'm going to get out of here and it's all going to be over. Because what that'll do is it can make you bitter about the fact that you have to be here. Think first about how Christ suffered. He said, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, think first about how Christ suffered and how Christ died. And then God gave him the resurrection. If you think of it from that angle... You can realize that the suffering that you're going through, the difficulties, are part of the Christ life. It's not, a, it's not a, like a mystery. Why am I suffering? 
If you're a Christian, you're going to follow the path that Jesus followed, which is suffering. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not around it, not above it, through it. You're going to have to go through suffering. And then say, but it's going to be okay. Because even if I die, he is going to resurrect me and take me. Or he might just take me right now. If you start with, man, I got to get out of here. God, give me the rapture. Get me out of here. Then you look at suffering as less than what it is. A gift from God to help you become more Christ-like. If you'll accept it and say, Lord, help me through this. Then the Lord brings the blessed hope to mind. Yes, I have to go through this suffering, but there's a chance it might be over today. Just like Joseph as he sat in the dungeon languishing for years. And in one afternoon, the head man in the kingdom called him up and changed his garments and shaved him and made him second in the kingdom. In one afternoon, it could happen. If Joseph was sitting in the dungeon saying, when is he going to call me? When is he going to call me? He never would have been busy serving the other prisoners. When he began to help other people with his dreams, with their dreams, God began to make his dream come true. It's a miracle. If you'll allow God to do it in your life, it'll encourage you.